Now, Asia First on CNA 938. On February 24th, 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine from the north, east and south with the aim of gaining control of the country through military occupation. And Moscow had expected an early surrender from Kyiv with plans for a quick war. But in truth, Ukraine had been preparing for a Russian invasion as far back as 10 years ago. Well, today both sides are still engaged in war, but in a slow attritional warfare as the conflict enters its third year. Dr. Charles Kupchin, Senior Fellow of, on the Council of Foreign Relations, joins us this morning on Asia First. Dr. Kupchin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, let's start with that two-year mark that we've been talking about here in the war. It's still unclear the results that these two years have yielded for either side. What started as a full-scale invasion by Russia um, evolved into a counteroffensive by Ukraine uh, and has slowed now to attritional warfare. How would you assess how the war has panned out as it enters its, th its third year, Dr. Kupchin? Well, you know, year one was a, a stunning success for Ukraine in the sense that Ukrainian forces surprised everybody by repelling the Russian onslaught on Kyiv. And then the Ukrainians went back to seize about one half of the land that Russia took during its initial invasion in the February of 2022. Year two, the tables have to some extent turned in the sense that Russia's uh, been able to block the Ukrainian offensive that was launched in the summer of 2023. The Ukrainians ran up against mile after mile after mile of Russian defenses, minefields, tank traps, trenches, more minefields, and they simply weren't able to punch through. Now we're at a point where I think a military stalemate has settled in. And the big question is really, is the United States going to approve a new package of military and economic assistance, which the Ukrainians desperately need, partly because they're running out of ammunition to hold the line and to keep the Russians from breaking through. They're also facing shortages of air defense, and the Russians have continued to pound Ukrainian cities, including their energy infrastructure, from the air. So right now, we're at a really tentative, I would say, dangerous moment in this conflict. So one can observe then that the war demonstrates it is not always a numbers game. You know, where more troops, more money, more weapons actually equals victory. What does this tell us about the strengths and vulnerabilities of each side, Dr. Kupchan? Well, you know, the problem for Ukraine is that it's up against a much larger country. And the West threw the book at Russia when it comes to sanctions, basically unplugging them from the Western economy. And there was an initial shock, but the Russians did a pretty good job of reorienting their supply lines, their supply chains, their sales. They're now selling energy to the south and to the east rather than to Europe. They're now importing goods from places like Turkey and Georgia, Central Asia, rather than from Europe. And the economy has done pretty well. So time is not necessarily on Ukraine's side. It's a much smaller country, much smaller population, much smaller military industrial complex. Ukraine's advantage is that it has the West behind it, but the West has shown that its ability and political willingness to support Ukraine is not unlimited. 
we're in the middle of a knockdown drag out fight here between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to a new package uh, of aid. So I think for now, we're probably in a, a situation in which Ukrainians are going to be able to hold the line. But I think the, the, bigger, the bigger question mark is, is the U.S. going to step forward? And will we get to a point where Ukraine and Russia are ready to declare a ceasefire and begin to talk about a negotiated settlement? Bottom line, in my judgment, Ukraine is not going to win this war on the ground. As a consequence, their best bet for restoring territorial integrity is at the negotiating table, not on the battlefield. How far away are they, though, from that negotiating table? Because it doesn't seem like very likely uh, in the near term, at least. I think that's uh, that's correct. Uh, and that's for a couple of different reasons. One is that Vladimir Putin is probably waiting out the November elections in the United States because he thinks he can get a better deal from Donald Trump if he wins than he can from Joe Biden. And I think that's probably accurate. And two, and this is the most important actor here, we don't see Ukraine ready to move to negotiations. The Ukrainians are determined to keep fighting. They're waiting for the next big dollop of aid to arrive. And until both Kyiv and Moscow are ready to explore a ceasefire and a negotiated settlement, we're not going to get one. And that's why my prediction for 2024 would be the onset of a new frozen conflict. The fighting dies down, the front line settles in, but instead of getting some kind of formal ceasefire and a cessation of hostilities, we just go down to a low boil and this conflict drags on for quite a long time. Let's talk about the narrative of dwindling Western support for Ukraine. Uh, there's crucial military aid being stalled in the U.S. Now, that's being held hostage over a domestic American border tussle. But on the other hand, we're aware of France, Germany, and now Italy. They've signed pacts to supply weapons and aid to help Ukraine continue its fight. So has the narrative changed somewhat? Well, you know, the Europeans have stepped up to the plate. There are a couple countries, Slovakia among them, that have backed off their readiness to continue to support Ukraine with arms. But by and large, Europe uh, is ready to, to stay steady. They just passed a, a, a 50 billion euro budget of economic assistance. Countries are stepping forward with more arms. The problem is that the United States, which has been a major supplier of arms, also needs to step forward. My best guess is that Congress will eventually agree to a new aid, a new aid package, in part because the Republicans don't want to own a potential uh, defeat of Ukraine. And if the Ukrainians don't get more weaponry, they may not be able to hold the line. And then we head into a presidential election with the Democrats able to blame the Republicans for the failure of Ukraine's effort to defend itself and to defend democracy. So I think we'll eventually get a package, but bottom line is that the domestic politics of supporting Ukraine are much more complicated moving forward than they have been looking back. 
And that's one of the reasons that I think time is not necessarily on Ukraine's side and why sooner rather than later, it's important for the parties to explore diplomacy, a ceasefire, and in the long run, a territorial settlement. Dr. Kupchin, I wanted to talk about the sanctions now that have been imposed on Russia. They've also been imposed on Iran, on North Korea to some extent, all notably allied with one another, and they have found ways to evade Western bans. And there are now fresh sanction targets on companies in China and India due to links to the war, due to links uh, in support of Moscow's war effort specifically. Could these have any real further effects in the same attritional way that we're seeing in the war? With respect to countries like Iran and North Korea, yes. The sanctions regime that the United States has implemented with the help of the UN and other members of the international community have been quite effective in isolating Iran and North Korea uh, degrading their economies, successfully in the case of Iran, pushing them to the negotiating table on the nuclear program, although that deal lapsed when Trump was president. But with Russia, no. Russia is simply too big. And, uh, you know, instead of selling oil and gas to the Europeans, they're selling it to the Indians and to the Chinese. Instead of importing consumer goods from Germany, they're importing them from other places. And the Russian economy has actually begun to grow again and is doing pretty well. And we haven't really seen these sanctions be able to take a significant bite out of Russia's ability to keep sustaining <clears throat> this war. In fact, they're moving the economy to a war footing. So yes, there will be new sanctions. Yes, tomorrow, in uh, U.S. time on Friday, the U.S. Treasury will roll out new sanctions in response to the death of Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader in Russia, but they will not matter. Uh, the, I would say the most important steps that the U.S. can take is to go after companies that are helping the Russians circumvent sanctions. And you mentioned these uh, measures against Indian companies, Chinese companies, companies in the Middle East. But it's a little bit like a game of whack-a-mole, where you go after this company that's helping the Russians circumvent sanctions, and another one pops up. Big picture here is the sanctions represent symbolic slap on the wrist to Russia, but don't significantly degrade Russia's ability to prosecute the war in Ukraine. Dr. Kupchun, let's end off with a retrospective look at Ukraine as we mark the second year of the war. Uh, the battle for Kyiv is decades old, dating back to Ukraine's modern independence around 18, 1918. By then, there had already been a strong national identity that separated Ukraine from Russia as a sovereign country, which then made occupation quite difficult in the years after. Could history suggest that any Russian control would not last again? Well, you know, the, the dirty little secret here is that Russia has lost Ukraine. And when, when historians write books titled Who Lost Ukraine, the answer is going to be Vladimir Putin, because he has taken a country that was fragmented between East and West, with the East much more Russian-oriented, Russian-speaking, watching Russian TV, very much in some ways affiliated with Russia, and he's turned it into a country with a fiercely anti-Russian 
identity. And there's no way that Ukraine can ever be reintegrated to the Russian sphere of influence because there are 40 million seething Ukrainians today who want nothing to do with Russia. So I think this story is going to end with, uh, hopefully, the reconstruction of Ukraine, the standing up of a Ukraine that is prosperous, democratic, and secure, with or without its 18% of territory that is today controlled by the Russians. And that will be, in the end, a stunning strategic defeat for Russia, because they will, they will have lost Ukraine. They may have gotten a consolation prize of grabbing hold of some of Ukraine's territory, but they will see Ukraine integrate into the West as a democracy, as a prosperous uh, state that has succeeded in joining the Western community of nations. That's what Putin tried to avoid. But my guess is that's where this story is going to end. Dr. Kupchen, your insights have been really fascinating and valuable indeed here on Asia First. We thank you for taking the time to spend spending with us uh, to mark this second anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine war. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Charles Kupchen. He's a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. 